solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. This is... one of those topics that's tricky on where to start and we can go more into that in just a little bit um but i was listening to go figure a podcast the other day um about the viking age and that's where i floated the idea to you about like you know the spread of christianity into europe um not quite as a historical pursuit or study or examination per se but it got me thinking about cultural transmission how people organize in societies that difference between psychology and sociology right the individual versus groupthink um what did uh what did you look at to prepare for this I tried to find any amount of like, what were the people feeling when Christianity rolled through? Net negative, net positive, nobody cared. This was just a weird thing that our king is doing and I'm not interested or the king is doing it. Now everyone needs to. And it appears as though nothing, no one was keeping a diary, I guess. We don't know how people felt on it as like an individual um, beyond like royalty and the big names that we still know today. Um, I did, my biggest question was like, what was the allure of Christianity? What were the exact teachings going on at that time as compared to today? Obviously it's a lot different. Um, what was the, were there significant changes to the monarchy structure because of Christianity or was it just, it seems like kind of the same old, same old as far as like how, you know, townships or rulers or things were done. Um, and then I also learned a lot about Harold Bluetooth. I love. Yeah, he's an interesting character and you're probably more qualified at this point to talk about him than, than I am, which is interesting because you're the psychologist and I'm the historian, but. I've heard his name through passing mm -hmm. and I know ish his story, although I'm not at all prepared to try and go, go through that on my end chronologically. Although I would love to hear it from your end. One thing that I, I did found. Oh, no, no, no. Go, go ahead. I found that he obviously is where the name Bluetooth comes from, but he is the Viking leader that we, are finding structures from like he said build a town here build a road here and those are physical things that people can dig up and go look at as opposed to other viking structures or kings where there's really nothing left of their monarchy and so it seems like he was easily the most established and organized and forward-thinking ruler they ever had because of the like infrastructure that he put in that they can still find 
Um, and he was the one who apparently brought Christianity to the Vikings, um, which I don't know if that speaks to just him being super organized. So he was able to spread information or if he had some other motive. Um, but that was the gist of what I covered up. He brought Christianity to Denmark specifically. Which is just a forward here, because if we don't, all of the proper historians are going to try and crucify us on this one. Viking is a contemporary catch-all term for the organic, fluid, ethnic blending of this multi-ethnic, multicultural area in Western, Central, and Northern Europe. Specifically, like, the Danes aren't in Denmark as we understand Denmark today. Denmark included the north of France, the north of Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands. It included some of the Nordic Isles, Sweden, Norway. It even kind of branched over into the British Isles a little bit, too. Um, so for the duration of this episode, when we're talking about the Vikings or we say Viking, we basically just mean any of the Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, Danish... Gallic, Germanic cultures in that maelstrom of disorganized Europe. Now, exploring the spread of Christianity into Europe in the early medieval period is a tricky question. I did kind of approach this more from like a historian's perspective, where the biggest question when you're trying to tell a story or explore a story is where does the story start? The podcast I was listening to, most of the two primary episodes that I listened to talked about that period in roughly the 500s, give or take, and the establishment of those kingdoms that would become something more recognizable as France and Germany and England and Denmark and Sweden and Norway. But we can, we've got like three different stories that are going on here. The first is the story of the structuring of Europe, which that story starts essentially with the invasion of Gaul by Julius Caesar in the roughly 50s BC. Um, because that started establishing a lot of the Roman infrastructure that it would be, you know, 1500 years before European cultures, especially European material culture, got sufficient enough to reproduce and outbuild those things most of the roads in britain in the five six seven eight nine hundreds were the roman roads because they couldn't build better ones another story that we have here too is the fall of that roman infrastructure in western europe as most of those roman powers transferred to uh, byzantium in the Byzantine Empire in the East. Much like cats, nature abhors a vacuum. And 
with the invasion of the Huns from the east into the Ostrogoths, into the Visigoths, into Rome, which led to the sacking of Rome in like 410 AD. Much of the Roman... What's the term I'm looking for? Much of their political structures vacated the area, which left that vacuum for the peoples in Central and Western Europe to hash things out much more at their tribal level as opposed to geopolitically. The third story that we have going on here too, and this is why it's so difficult to find a starting point for, for all of these is the story of the rise of Christianity itself. One of the things I kept thinking about as I was trying to prepare for this was how did a near or Middle Eastern Abrahamic religion become the grounding point for Western European culture? Every single Western European nation at least was, if not still is, predominantly Christian. It was the state religion in most of those nation states for the longest time, too. And, you know, that's an interesting question, because if we're talking the rise of Christianity in general, in order to get to the point of the spread of Christianity northwest into Europe, you know, we go back to the early Christian martyrs being sacrificed literally and metaphorically fed to lions in the Colosseum because the state religion was still pagan. Yeah. And we don't know. I couldn't find any primary sources on writings from those type of people or interviews or anything about your common like shop owner, how were they feeling about before Christianity came? How did they feel during? How did they feel after? If this was something that the people were just sort of yearning for and there was, you know, it just made the society was ripe for it. They were ready. Um, but it seems like, I don't know, because I doubt that the Christians came over with the narrative that like we're going to add like, you know, we're going to unite everybody under this and, or maybe they were, I don't, the other thing is, I don't know exactly what the very, very early Christians were saying about it because we have written down now, like a Bible that's been translated a bunch of times. And we have our modern interpretations of those things and the parts that we just say, oh, that's old. We don't talk about that. And so I don't want to use that as a source for what they were actually saying. If you were getting, you know, missionaried in rural France, what were they telling you? Which is interesting because from the historical perspective, what we tend to come to is what we call big history. Because there's a lack of sources, some of that through just general illiteracy of the common people, some of that through some cultures just didn't write things down. A lot of the early Viking cultures, the only things we know about them is because they ran into cultures that did write things down. Julius Caesar's war commentaries in Gaul is a perfect example. There's no other written documentation 
from that era about those people that he was engaged with. So at best, we have biased eyewitness accounts with a political agenda describing these peoples and their beliefs and their apprehensions against these new religions. At worst, we have deliberate fabrications for a biased political agenda. Um, there's a whole subcategory of historical studies called subaltern studies, subaltern stemming from the British military term for subordinate. Like you're, you're an officer, but you're a lower officer subaltern. It is a technical term for that. And the, the whole point of that realm of historical studies is to read between the lines and against the grain to try and find voices of the common people that otherwise would be voiceless. You're right. You, so like you could look at court records, for instance, to see how people pled their cases and use that to extrapolate generalized feelings of the common people. You can look at how for example, Julius Caesar is describing the, the Gallic and Germanic peoples that he's fighting and recognize that it's in his interest to make them seem more vicious than what they are because it makes him seem like a, like a better general. And we can kind of hear echoes of their voices in that. And a lot of that is speculative, though, because we just don't have the sources. Um. I did look at – I've got a couple things. I have a book on my Kindle. It's called The Children of Ash and Elm, uh, The Details of the Viking Age. I looked at Mark Morris's The Anglo-Saxons, which has been a fantastic read so far. I was surprised at my lack of knowledge of the rise of these cultures that at least our family, we have traced our roots from. Right. I know a lot about the ancient Romans. I know a lot about the Egyptians. Those have been at like at the top of my interest list these past couple of years. Um, how England became the formalized state that is England and Scotland, where our ancestors are from. There's this huge gap from like 1500 to the BCs that I had to fill in. Another thing I looked at is at least parts of Will Durant's the Age of Faith. It's a 1,100-page tome, so obviously I didn't get to read through all of it, but I did. I was explaining to William the beauty of those big books like that is um, their reference points. You find the era that you're looking for, and you read that chapter, and you pull the bits and pieces out of it that you can. Um, I found a couple interesting things talking to your point about how the ordinary people responded to these things. There's a section in Morse's The Anglo-Saxons that I found. is talking about I'm in a chapter that's discussing the spread of the bishoprics in the different kingdoms that would become England, Wessex, Sussex, Northumbria, things like that. And he was talking about how 
well, you know, let me just read this paragraph for you that we can discuss it a little bit. Um, and this is, again, from Mark Morris's Anglo-Saxons. Uh, quote, when it came to the lives of ordinary people, however, the elite were better at telling them what they were not allowed to do rather than what they should be doing instead. King Eorkenbert of Kent, who ruled from 640 to 664, drew praise from Bede. Bede's one of those... Uh, early medieval late antiquity historians for being the first Anglo-Saxon ruler to order the destruction of idols across his whole kingdom and also for ordering people to fast during Lent. But while the authorities were trying to eradicate pagan practices, most people were left in the dark about the nature of Christianity. One of the few apologize, I just got a ding. One of the few stories told by Bede to feature ordinary folk is extremely revealing in this regard. He describes how some monks were using rafts to move wood down the river Tyne when a sudden storm blew up and swept them out to sea. Other monks who were watching from the monastery were distressed, but the peasants who observed the spectacle simply stood and jeered. When they were rebuked for this, they replied with further insolence. Let the monks drown, they declared, for they have robbed people of their old ways of worship, and how the new worship is to be conducted, nobody knows. End quote. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I, I found that particularly fascinating. It's from a section where Morris is talking about how, and this is just, something that I realized was a modern conception that we unconsciously project into the past for how things just happen to be, especially living in the South. We have churches everywhere. We have places where people can go to worship, right? That's not how it started. In many of these places, there were, you mentioned missions and missionaries earlier. There were the monasteries and then the priests, monks, and bishops were expected to do their rounds from the monasteries to go visit the villages to offer them worship. They didn't have a church in every town. They didn't have the specialized gathering point for these religious ceremonies. They had this holier-than-thou person rode in, oftentimes literally on their high horse, to rebuke you and tell you how you've been living your life improperly and you need to rectify that with God. And so here's the things that you need to do to absolve yourself of the sins from the past four weeks since the last time you saw me. And then he rides off into the mists and then you're left with what? You didn't have a copy of the Bible that you can read. In fact, that's part of what Martin Luther was kind of excommunicated from the Catholic Church for was his whole like, hey, we need to print these in the common tongue so ordinary people can read it on their own because you're not prescribing this doctrine that's arcane and mystic and difficult for us to understand. And I think that passage that I just read perfectly encapsulates that in the in the sense that here we have an organizational structure that is in its early stages growing alongside the political organizations in these areas starting to pull some of those strings for how these cultures are supposed to operate and is still so removed from the people writ large right that abstract concept of the people that 
there's no connection there. If you wanted to have that connection and you have wanted to have that understanding, you had to go, you know, immerse yourself in that. You had to go become a monk, go find a friary to work at, things of that nature. The other element to that is the people who were, the people who are right now, we're reading their books about this, you know, like written in the 30s or 40s or all of that, were also Christians looking back on Christianity in their own light. So the the book written about the primary source I'm always thinking was written by like some like very posh, like 1915 professor who's like, has to be Christian or else the town will shun him still even like as recent as that. So I'm thinking of all of that time, how much they've been able to take a nice uh, wash over it and make it look a lot nicer and smoother and, you know, we, or no information at all, you know? So I think having to look back through and, make those interpretations where you can people have already done that and have come up with the interpretation that this was probably a net good for Europe and having Christianity here is better and, um, you know, out of obligation. So I do feel like a lot of the inaccuracies were already against us trying to learn about it because the only people writing things down were monks who obviously have their, specific perspective they were like the only people who were literate on purpose and then the people who read those get to interpret them a certain way as well and what are their motivations um so yeah it just feels like a complete lost cause to try and figure out because even people who are saying like oh christianity was a net negative for Europe also have their own agenda to say that, um, you know, we want to influence people one way or another. And yeah, I, I, a primary source I would love to read if they were available. And it's difficult because Of all of the reasons you just listed, we as the contemporaries, not contemporaries of the people that lived in the past, obviously, but contemporary meaning today, are left with seemingly no other option but to have the cynical reductionist analysis of the bureaucratic state building that came with Christianity. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean one of the phenomena that we see with the spread of Christianity in Europe was a lot of the local, regional, they're called petty kings, not petty as in like backstabbing, although they were that too, but petty as in like, you know, they weren't Charlemagne or Constantine or anything like that. They were the kings of their regional ethnic groups. 
a lot of times those people embraced like Bluetooth, for example, those people embraced Christianity as a state religion for the purpose of establishing their right to rule in that now bureaucratically organized state. Christianity starts pushing up from the fall of the Western Roman Empire and establishes this bureaucracy with the sprinkling of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I know that that's a reductionist view, and I know that that's cynical because it glosses over the fact that there were probably millions of ordinary people, monks, bishops, priests, converts, martyrs, a lot of the people that would receive sainthood during these times that, for all we know, earnestly knew, didn't just believe, but knew that they were right, that their actions were just, that their belief system was the quote-unquote correct one, and on the one hand, it's a shame that we don't have those sources. We don't have a diary of, you know, that Viking town leader wrestling with his, with his inner thoughts about weighing the pros and cons of converting from his pagan Viking beliefs to Christianity. What we do have are the tomes of hundreds of years of history of how Europe was baptized in blood and coerced cultural carrots and sticks into adopting Christianity because it gave them verifications for why they should be in charge. I think for me, I was thinking of a modern equivalent. And as far as like seeking verification for why I should be in charge, I have the beginnings of a thought that like the theory of genetics or like the discovery of DNA is kind of similar to like a religion in our world because we're not trading back and forth at all right now we've got you know the religions that are established are established and everything else is considered a cult and gets shut down by the government and like that is the status quo and so as far as these like belief systems or things that people uh hear about and accept and study and if you told them they were wrong they'd be like you're crazy i cannot believe that you would say that of course genetics is real of course there's heredity um and that was a fight as well to get that, you know, push through creationism and, um, the, you know, what is that used for today? What do we talk about genetics with today? What are we using to justify with genetics and what are we, um, and like, it's not to say that, you know, 
genetics isn't real, but there's no concept. It's a concept that everyone is universally, they've heard about, they've learned it, they've accepted it. And now we base our worldviews off of this. Um, some people have good genetics, some people have bad genetics. Um, and you can see, or, you know, especially like during the 30s and 40s before World War II, like a huge push for eugenics and getting very a little too far into genetics. And then we've reeled it back a little bit, but there are still some people who are a little too obsessed with how good your genes are. Um, so I feel like that's a good modern equivalent. And it's thinking like, how is this information spread? You're just told that and you just accept it. And I wonder if spreading Christianity was just that easy where you know, like, oh, you think it's this, but uh, it's actually this. And this guy came up with it. And this guy wrote it down. And this is where this all this information came from. And now you have it. And people go, OK, that's how the world is. And that's one thing to consider, too. And I'm not going to belabor the point because we have. I think three episodes previously that we discuss religion at the psychological level. Um, so if our listeners are interested in knowing more about how we feel about what religion does and why people are drawn to it, you can go back and, and reference those. But we have to imagine too, it's the same way as like falling in love or getting in shape or growing corn, right? There's no marked date. I've been married for 11 years. I can't filter back through time and say on November the 22nd of 2008, that's when it clicked for me, right? It's kind of this weird intermediate, extended intermediate phase. And then you happen to stop and take a step back and look around and realize you're there, right? Same thing with going to the gym. You go to the gym for 30 minutes a day, five days a week for six months. You're not going to have, this is the day I got in shape. You're just going to catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror at some point down the line and notice that a change has been made, right? And if we zoom out and look at that from the macro level, the same thing is happening with cultures. These people are, to be grammatically correct, these people were oftentimes flip-flopping back and forth between these different worldviews to what applied to them and helped explain their position better at the time. Um, let's see if I can find it really quickly. There's another passage from the Anglo-Saxons that I bracketed and I wanted to read because it exemplified that point really, really, really well. Here we go. Quote, in the summer of 664, there was a sudden and devastating outbreak of plague. Unlike the previous visitation a century earlier, its impact on Britain is well attested. Bede tells us that it began in the south. Among its first victims were the king of Kent, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, both of whom died on 14 July. From Kent, it spread to Essex, where it led to a rejection of Christianity as people began restoring derelict 
temples and worship engraven images, hoping to placate the fury of their old gods. Tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, must have perished as the plague ripped mercilessly through communities across the whole country. The South, says Bede, was depopulated, while in the North, the disease raged, quote, within the quote, far and wide with cruel devastation, laying low a vast number of people. Among those it carried off was the kingdom's new bishop, Tudor. And that's fascinating to me because it sounds like on the cultural level, what is religion? Religion's a, a, a worldview that cohesive, we all understand the world works in this certain type of way, and that's how we're able to relate to each other and interact. And when things are going wrong, when life gets difficult, people tend to question whether their worldview is accurate or not, whether that cognitive map they have of the world and their place in it is still sufficient and accurate. If not, it needs to get updated so that way the world can start being nicer to them. And one of the spinoff thoughts that I had was um, I read, I, I can't remember if it was a book or an academic article when I was doing my master's about um, the history in the 1500s of the peoples that would populate New England in the American colonial era, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, things like that. And one of the, the main thesis of this was that these peoples had a providential view of their place in the world because they were as a subculture growing up in a time in europe that was recovering from the bubonic plague right population boom bubonic plague hits in the mid 1300s huge population collapse like a third of europe dies now we have all these vacant spots and that population starts to rise and peak again. That's part of that push-pull human migration factor that pushed people out of Europe to begin with into the Americas. Because these, the subculture, these sects of Christianity survived, made the voyage across, and were more or less successful writ large in the New World, that that was post hoc a priori proof that they and their beliefs were right because providence had blessed them otherwise they wouldn't have made it some confirmation bias right now you can't look at them and fault them for that because all things considered, examining their body of evidence, they're not wrong. They were yeah. living their lives in, in a type of way and embodying a set of behaviors that allowed them to continue populating their villages and harvesting their, their crops and tending to their animals and hunting and more or less surviving as a culture. And that passage that I just read um, from 
Anglo-Saxons reminds me of that in the sense that we'd have to imagine that most of Europe at the time was flip-flopping. You know, that, that scene in the first Mummy movie where the, I forget the character's name, but he's kind of like like the soft villain. He's the flip-floppy traitor when he first mm-hmm. meets the mummy and he has like his 10 religious medallions and he's just flipping through reciting all of the holy prayers <laughs> for each one until he finds the one that saves him, right? I, I imagine that because that's that's human nature. If what you're doing isn't working or you're being presented with evidence that it's insufficient, you know, it's kind of the human thing to do to try the next best thing. Christianity comes along, it gives you this bureaucracy, it gives this state building that fills the vacuum of the fall of the Roman Empire to where you might not remember, but culturally you remember five generations ago when there were cities. You're literally traveling through Europe seeing evidence of a culture and civilization that was more advanced than yours. And you're trying to get back to that because that's quote unquote success. Mm -hmm. And then you get hit with the plague. You're going to second guess that conversion decision. Maybe, maybe the world is just cruel and bitter. And so those anthropomorphized gods of the Viking religions, Thor, Odin, that are they're relatable because they act like us they backstab each other they connive they have biases they plot they scheme they fight they're prone to passions both of anger and of lust and of desire and goals maybe that is how the world works and by ascribing to something that's chaste and pure and expects perfection from us in an imperfect world right yeah like if you put yourself in the leather moccasins of a viking warrior in the 600s that line of reasoning makes sense i was thinking too of the person who is doing one thing experiences hardship changes what they're doing that works and they continue on with that um but sometimes you can get the strengthening of the status quo by seeing people try something new and judging them and saying that looks ridiculous like i imagine everyone that when you're mentioning this south of um england the plague first hit and a few villages reverted back to paganism i imagine all of the other christians who hear about that but aren't there experiencing that go you know this is why you guys are why and sometimes seeing that person switch it up makes the status quo stronger because number one, if you look crazy, you look crazy. It doesn't. Uh, and if you're acting erratic and people don't understand you and you're talking too fast and you're 
you know, doing things that people haven't done in thousands of years or hundreds of years. Um, so yeah, I think every time that that does happen, or that sort of explains why Christianity persisted, because there wasn't very good communication during these times. You couldn't just wash over and say, everyone, just wash your hands and that'll solve everything. Even if someone knew that, they couldn't get that information out. It wouldn't have changed a thing. Um, so when information did get to them about, you know, the flagellists who are cutting themselves open in order to stop the plague and it's not working and everyone goes like, okay, I'm going to keep doing my thing even harder. Well, and it's interesting too, because we often forget, especially looking farther back in time, that this cultural transmission is a two-way street. There's a, I guess the proper term in this instance is hypothesis in historical pursuits. I call it the core periphery idea where culture is produced at a core and then pushed out to the peripheries of that culture. Right. So like, you know, just take England as an example. The first thing that pops to mind when you say England is London, right? Parliament, Big Ben, those things. And that seems to be the core of where the cultural attributes that define English culture, quote unquote, tends to be negotiated and designed at a societal level and then pushed out to the periphery of wherever it is that culture has influence. But an interesting thing that happens is the peripheries of different cultures intermingle and in turn apply pressures back to the core right and yeah while and this is something i i I picked up from um will durant's book the age of faith um in fact i'm just just going to quote it here um quote once the empire had romanized such elements he's talking about the building of those infrastructures in Europe in the 300s. Now the immigrants barbarized the Romans. Romans begin to wear fur coats in barbarian style and to let their hair flow long. Some even took to trousers, evoking outraged imperial decrees, end quote. Which is interesting to me. That's so funny. Because, it's probably just cold. <laughs> well, and but also too, they're adopting the styles of the peoples that they're governing because they're embedded in what would be the periphery of Roman culture, but is actually closer to the core of that multi-ethnic melting pot that is Europe at this time that is not clearly defined that Mm. oftentimes the difference between a Danish Viking and a Visigoth is just one of dialect and locality, right? And it gets to the point that even, especially after the the sack of Rome in, in the early 400s, 
that a lot of the Roman emperors are European themselves. Um, I didn't write his name down, but there was a, a an emperor in the Byzantine Empire. He was a Spaniard. Right? He was from the Roman provinces in Spain. Born there, raised there, for all intents and purposes, is a Spanish European, whatever that means at the time. And yet here he is getting pushed from the periphery back into the core to lead, for all intents and purposes, a completely different cultural entity, right? And going back to the flip-flopping between Christian and pagan to Christian and pagan again, depending on the context and what their specific needs were, I mean, hell, that's part of how Constantine himself became the emperor that converted the Roman Empire to at least we popularly remember, you know, converting the entire empire to, to Christianity was he was pagan and he found himself on the eve of a big battle and was apprehensive about it and had the the nighttime vision that if he paints the their version of the crosses on all of his warrior shields that, you know, God would divinely intervene and allow him to win. And legend holds that he did win the battle. So he was like, okay, maybe there's something here, right? You can see even, even that great man, and by great man, I mean like the, the great men theory of history where these larger-than-life people make decisions that affect you know hundreds of years into the future. Um, even he was flip-flopping until he got enough confirmation to have Christianity sold to him in that way. Um, but I, I got another quote from Durant really quick that, that exemplifies that. <sighs> Apprehension of are we doing it right from the Christian perspective as opposed to those villages that were like, hey, you guys messed everything up. We're going back to our pagan gods. He says, quote, how could the evils of the barbarian invasions be reconciled with divine and beneficent providence? These sufferings, Salvian answered, were a just punishment for the economic exploitation, political corruption, and moral debauchery of the Roman world. The barbarian's heart is softer than the Romans. End quote. Which is interesting to me because, and I know this is something that we corresponded with a little bit in, in the, the preceding weeks in preparation for this, but we have kind of hidden in all of this, we have like that, that fourth story that's intermingled with the rise of Christianity from a near to Middle Eastern Abrahamic religion becoming the predominant religion in Western and Central Europe is that clear delineation between the early Christian martyrs that were basically moral purists mm -hmm. and the effects of state building on the corruption of those religious leaders with worldly affairs and worldly goods, right? How do we go from You know, Peter, who was so devout and pure in his ways that he refused to 
even have the slightest renunciation of his faith on pain of death and was crucified upside down because he felt unable to it would be a dishonor to Christ to be crucified in the same way that he was. We go from that to in this the Anglo-Saxons, the part that I'm in, in the Christianizing of England was, you know, we now we fast forward four or five hundred years and we have people becoming bishops and for their bishoping ceremonies, whatever the technical term for that is. I want to say coronation, but I know that's incorrect. You know, they're getting escorted into the cathedrals on um, hand-carried chariots of gold. Like, that's a big separation between those two different types of Christians, right? So oh, yeah. on, to on top of that, pagan christian flip-flopping there's that looking in the mirror self-reflection analysis of the contemporary with the times christians of are we doing it right are all of these terrible things that are happening to us in the world because the world is difficult or because we've offended our religious structure or anything like that um and that got me thinking about well that got me thinking about an idea that i've had and, and i'm pretty sure we've talked about it before so i'm going to try not to belabor it too much um but i call it archetypal expectations and archetypal accommodation and the easiest way that I have to explain it is just my own personal experience, and then I'll try and circle back around. So, as you know, I'm a father. I have kids. I interact with my kids, but I interact with them in a way that scales down who I am and how I navigate and manage myself in the world to age appropriate levels for them. What that means is, they get an incomplete version of me to interact with. They don't need to see me stressing about finances. They're eight and ten. They don't need to see me negotiating a an argument with my wife. They're eight and ten, right? They just need to know that mom and dad are a team, and that's that. So when they go out and interact with the world and they play games or they see other parents or they see father figures on TV, what, what do they do? They adopt and model their understanding of what a father should be based on their more perfect than I actually am incomplete understanding of me. And in doing so, they are in turn acting out how they think a father is supposed to be and behave, which changes their expectations for how they think I should behave. They create that archetype of what a father figure is, and then in full circular fashion, apply that archetype onto me, 
which places those expectations for me to to grow and fill those shoes, right? That's that archetypal expectation. And once I'm aware of those expectations, then I can accommodate those. That's that archetypal accommodation. Um, that's part of my theory for why the American colonies became irreconcilable with the English imperial system was because there were too many generations removed from the core of their culture. They lived on the periphery for too many generations and they developed that more perfect than it could actually be idea, that archetype of how the king is supposed to behave and how the imperial system is supposed to work and place those expectations that it was never going to be able to meet back onto it. We have that happening in this turmoil that is the 400s, 500s, and 600s Christian system in Europe at the time as it spreads, is as it's spreading, these people that are interacting with this system are generating this archetype of what it's supposed to be, the ailments that it's supposed to cure, both like physically and socially, and then placing those expectations back onto the system in a way that it's never able to actually accommodate. Does that make any sense? It does. And the, you need to be just far enough away so that you don't see the truth, but you need to be close enough so that you're constantly contacting that archetype to have that perfect sweet spot where things will stay the same. And if you're too close yeah, I think that's a great, or one of the reasons that Bibles were only in Latin and you weren't allowed to learn how to read unless it was for religious reasons. And once you did, later on, the only thing you could read was the Bible um, and having that type of arm's length approach to governing and uh, I guess, I don't know the religious equivalent of governing. I don't know what the word would be. Well, the farther back in time we go, the more and more that politics and religion are inseparable. I mean, we have... I want to say it's around the time of Charlemagne. It might be Charlemagne himself. Um, we're talking Holy Roman Empire, right? So the Western portion of the empire, not not the Byzantine part. Um, we have that power struggle between what has become the bureaucratic political structures of the church. And then the bureaucratic political structures of the region that the church is influencing. And it was Charlemagne's coronation, if I remember correctly, where he was basically tricked by the Pope. Or whatever the equivalent was at the time of. I think he was kneeling to receive communion. And when he knelt down the Pope placed the Holy Roman Emperor's crown on his head because that symbolizes 
that Charlemagne might be the political and military leader, but he's still subservient to the powerful religious structures that are growing alongside of it. I was actually thinking, like, as far as the power of Christianity and the control that they enacted was, as a group, pretty genius. I mean, obviously it worked incredibly well. And it was Christianity to the exclusion of all others. Whereas paganism apparently was more along the lines of like, you know, I have this accent because I live here and you have that accent. Do you there? Why would we have the same accent? That's weird. And then Christianity comes in and is like, everyone needs to have the same accent. Um, so having your own personalized religion that is specific to you and where you live and meeting someone who's doing something else would not be very shocking or upsetting. I don't think, I don't actually know, <laughs> but it didn't seem like, like they were doing like general warring, but it wasn't religious wars going on. Um, or if there was conflicts, it wasn't because I'm right and you're wrong about this religious thing. It was a little more practical. And so taking introducing Christianity is this is the only thing and you have to, you know, uh, rebuke everything else. And this is the only thing that you can believe. And if you sway from it, even a little bit, it's at the you know peril of your soul and how that is very strong and maybe scary and difficult to buy into. If you're used to like, well, what's the problem? Can I keep doing my own thing? And there's a couple of like allegories in the Bible specifically about, no, you cannot keep doing your own thing. And this, you have to stop doing your own thing. You just have to do my thing. Um, and that type of rejection of anything else, which is why I think it was so universal. There was no room for error um, at the, you know, burning like a witch at the stake um, consequences for doing anything else. Um, and so how much does that play into how tight a hold that it had versus the resistance that they were seeing at first? Um, but at a certain point, the scale tipped. And once, you know, 51% of the people say to the exclusion of all others, that won out very quickly after. It didn't take a lot of persuasion after, you know, a certain amount of nudging. Right. And, and it's important to keep in mind that during this time that we're talking about, you know, roughly between roughly between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Norman invasion in 1066 into into England. Um, that. I don't have any numbers that I wrote down or on the top of my head, but. I think the phrase is um, more Christians suffered during this time at the hands of more devout Christians than any other group, right? Because they were weeding out those, those heresies as they kind of bickered over doctrine and dogma over to which one was going to be supreme in that case. Um, right. Another thing that that got me thinking of is that's how a lot of scholars hypothesize that monotheism became a thing to begin with was the aggregation of different ethnic groups within a culture becoming 
consolidated and by definition then in becoming consolidated their pantheon of regional deities had to become consolidated as well in fact that's where the origins of most of the pantheon of the ancient egyptian deities comes from each of the little regions had they were called gnomes n-o-m-e-s each of them had their own little patron patron saints it is is the way that we would understand it today um and those regional patron deities became subsumed in the greater egyptian culture and those deities kind of took their spot in the quote-unquote official pantheon as a way to reconcile all of those regional differences together under the one overarching umbrella. And when you have a dozen or so equally potent deities, the one that's going to be on top is the one representing whoever happens to be in power to say that this one is the one that's on top. That's something interesting as well, because... Comparing Christianity to like the other big five religions, it is the most polytheistic a monotheistic religion could possibly get. It is so like, you know, already the one God is split into three and then there's Mary and then there's the saints and there's all of these people. Um, So it is at its heart, technically monotheistic, but in practice tends to practice a little bit more is polytheistic um, because you have all of these other big characters and um, like innately it's split into the Trinity and, or at least, you know, what I was leading into was that that is probably why Protestantism shattered like glass versus, you know, there's been like 20 different types of Muslims over the time that that's been widely practiced and there's thousands of different types of Christians. Um, and it probably comes down to that little bit of out of control grassroots, like you too can become a saint and people are like, bet I will. And then, you know, once that ball started rolling, it did not stop and it has not stopped. And there's more Christian cults in America alone than there are it's it's just shattered so much um so I think the like maybe it did so well because it was I don't this is so hard because I don't know exactly what they were practicing at the time that they were doing this but my thought is that it uh still allowed for some polytheistic tendencies you can have the saint of France you can have Joan of Arc she can be a religious figure and that's fine um and that that flexibility, I think, ended up being a powerful staying point for Christianity in Europe and everywhere that it's been. Because you can, there are other people that you can look to, um, like, because God, Jesus, already, I think you see what I'm saying. We're like the... Yeah, the the ability for interpretation is there built in, at least to what we know is like modern written down history of Christianity that we can be sure about. It has a. It has an ability to appeal to. 
a variety of regional needs. Yeah. Right. Um, and I wonder if that is, I'm in no position to make this authoritative claim whatsoever, but I'm just I'm thinking out loud. I wonder if that is a byproduct of that Oh, how did Durant put it? The Rome, uh, the immigrants barbarized the Romans. I wonder if that is is an element of that pushback from the periphery, right? As you have the herald Bluetooths finding a way that this Christian dogma and doctrine applies to their specific and unique cultural enmeshment and pushing that homegrown interpretation back into the core. Yeah, my favorite, or from last podcast on the list when they were covering uh, Mormonism and how that all went down in America, um, the sort of conclusion that they came to for why the Latter-day Saints were like got so big, it genuinely did start off as your typical Christian cult where one guy says like, I'm getting visions from God and everyone around him is influenced. And there's like 12 people. And for that person, like that was happening all the time. But people would say like, okay, dude, like it would, it would go and it would fizzle out and then the cult would be gone. And what they said was that like Joseph Smith died at the right time for this to become a real religion. He died at like 35 of an assassination and it was perfect because he didn't live long enough to destroy what he had created, which is kind of the same thing with Jesus dying at 33. If he had lived a lot longer and kept going, we probably wouldn't have Christianity because there wasn't that point where this person who could ruin it all is gone. Now they're just this concept that we can continue to meld as we need. And there's no evidence to say that I'm wrong. And so that's why the Mormonism became a real religion versus just a cult. And the same thing with Christianity starting off as a cult of 12 people and they're one person who's receiving visions or who is this chosen person. And then they die at the right time, um, the ideal time in their life's narrative for this to take off. And that's what happened. And then that, you know, starting with Jesus and then the next person died at the right time being Peter. And then the next person about, you know, a thousand examples of people getting killed in their prime. And then this is, continuing on even stronger in that region. Um, and I think like the Mormons are the best example of that. Recently, we have really clear evidence um, of a ton of different cults popping like that around the same time in the same area. And none of those have more than like a newspaper article about them because it didn't last very long because <laughs> people got bored. Um, and so that type of narrative of you know, there's very few people. Today, we do get some saints who lived a very long life. Um, but most of the time, you do have to die young before you have a chance to mess up everything that you had been doing in your 20s, which is 
interesting. It's very powerful. Right. Now, part of that is because we're all human and we're all fallible. Yes. Right. Um, and. Well, I think mostly people get tired of your bullshit after a while. Like if you are harping on them and like bringing them to the peak of their emotion and making them feel, you know, like falling on your knees and shaking and having visions. And you can only stand that for so long before you're just tired, you know, having that very peak touch with God. Um, you well, can't and, sustain and I, that forever. I think that goes back to my archetypal accommodation and archetypal expectations piece. If yeah, right. If you're around long enough, the people that you're trying to influence or are successfully influencing, I assume that they're going to start asking things like, "If your message is right, when's it going to happen?" Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and just to make sure that like we thoroughly piss off all of our, our religious viewers and listeners, that's a very interesting, heretical and blasphemous question to ask. How different would Christian doctrine be today if Christ was crucified 40 years later? Yeah. Right. Um, what would he have time to come up with in between now and then that we would be talking about? Yeah. How what much would be the new thing? How much different would the New Testament look? Would the teachings be different? Because you can only tell the same stories so many times in so many ways. Now, human beings are, are very versatile, and we found a way, you know, if you zoom out enough, Right. Um, what's the book called? The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Right. You zoom out enough and you can find the overarching narrative arc that drives humanity that, you know, if you look at all of the classic and epic poems in Western culture, they all fall on a spectrum somewhere with, you know, key elements. And the story has to check enough of the key element boxes for it to appeal to the human audience enough to persist through time and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, what, what, what other miracles would have been expected of him? Because you do if, have to kind of keep escalating it. Yeah. And, and what if it got to the point where he needed one? And it didn't happen, at least in the way that the people were responsive to. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and then, and then now, th- those are all hypotheticals. Um, we, it is bad form to practice counter-history. That being said, it's an interesting thought exercise to try and help understand why things played out the way that they did to ask the question of what would have happened if X, Y, and Z were instead A, B, and C. Um, but you yeah. know, once, once you start playing, playing around in the realm of counterfactual history, it's pure speculation and you can't make any authoritative claims. Um, no, that's, that's, that's wild to think about. Um, there was something I else think... I wanted to bring up too. Go, yeah. go ahead. That way I can think. Well, 
I think that like dying at the right time in quotes isn't necessarily about the age, but just the right time in whatever they're talking about where they have gotten. Cause like the big thing that all cults try that get them arrested is they try and resurrect a dead body and then they get arrested for abuse of a corpse and murder or whatever else. Um, that's the thing that you see in the news all the time is like, Oh, the 12 year old died and they kept his body in the church and the cult leader, you know, tried and it didn't work. Um, there was, uh, just a cult, um, with a woman who called herself mother God who died of liver failure. Cause she was a terrible alcoholic and her, she was a cult leader, which is interesting. She did kind of die at the right time. They thought that they could resurrect her. Obviously they could not. Um, but that tends to be the miracle. The thing that people are going for is this defeating of death. And for the origins of Christianity, Jesus did that twice, once with Lazarus and once by himself by coming back down from heaven or whatever, whatever he was doing um, after the crucifixion, coming back, sharing the word, and then despairing again. And that is, um, I think that that is staying power. So no matter how long he lived, that would have been enough to kick that into high gear. Um, but as yeah, just thinking of like what I know about cults and what I've studied and the patterns that you pick up on, that's the one that they go for. That's the one that Jesus nailed and uh, nailed it twice and then told everyone, you can have this as well if you just do what I do. And then poof. Um, Pun intended on the Jesus nailed. <laughs> no. You know, just to make sure that we're thoroughly blasphemous with all of this, for any of our listeners, this is um, mildly academic entertainment, and like we're not being heretical or intending to to piss anybody off. None of this conversation has been about whether these religions are or are not truthful in any capacity. Um, yeah, cult is a bad word in society, but it is accurate for a highly devout small group of people who have like a core belief system that is coming from a specific leader. Um, and yeah, I not think good, not a good term, not a bad term. The question the is, way and we've, kind of, we've kind of asked this before, right? Is a cult still a cult if they're right? I think that that's kind of that that delineator there. Right. Mm -hmm. Is this small group of devout people touching on something that is truthful in some kind of way for the human experience? If so, then it tends to stick and people find value out of it and their lives can become better. However, we define that. Right. If it's not because they're all drinking the Jonestown Kool-Aid and it's just mass suicide, then you know, not religion, more cult. Um, no, I, I remember what I wanted to bring up too, and this was like, you know, 30 minutes ago in this discussion, but we can circle back back to it and then see where it goes from here. Um, we have to keep in mind too that part of human nature is 
trying to find reasonings for things outside of our control. And I think that Well, you know, let, let me say this. Um, someone has a tragedy. They have an accident. They call 911. The ambulance shows up. The patient, victim, whatever term you want to use, gets carted off in the ambulance, and they, they pass on the way to the hospital. Right? It's terrible. I'm, I'm not trying to... to trigger any of our audience that that can sympathize or empathize with that or has been through an experience like that um but you know what what do people often do to console those directly affected by those circumstances we typically say something along the lines of you did everything that you could it was outside of your control as a way to try and find solace in the fact that sometimes bad things happen, right? Um, and, you know, one of the key questions that, that Christians have been asking for a long time, and people, especially skeptics, have been asking of Christians, is if God is omniscient and omnipotent, ever-present, all-knowing, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do kids die in hurricanes? Why is human trafficking a thing? Why do rapes and murders and all of that stuff happen? And me personally, I don't have an answer to that question. But the best answer that I've come up with so far in my own internal dialogue has been um, – It takes adversity for people to have the opportunity to practice resilience and become a stronger version of themselves. If life was easy, if life was safe, if success was guaranteed, we would be soft as Play-Doh. And the world is not safe. The world is not easy. Success is not guaranteed. So in order to become the person that's resilient enough to weather that storm, it takes difficult things, difficult experiences to go through to build those skills. Now, how does that relate at all to anything that we were talking about going back to the barbarization of the Romans, right, as as Europe became increasingly Romanized, the barbarians, you know, barbanized Rome, that quote from Will Durant earlier. I have another quote from Will Durant. Um, quote, every civilization is a fruit from the sturdy tree of barbarism and falls at the greatest distance from the trunk, end quote. Which I think is just poetic in, in that same sense that, because, I mean, we have to remember what, what did the Christian leaders do in the 400s, 500s, 600s, 700s, hell, all the way through the Crusades, right? They baptized Europe in blood. Um, 
Charlemagne himself, legend has it, you know, beheaded, what, 3,500, 4,500 pagan heathens after the Battle of Verden. Um, you know, and when he was chastised for it, he basically told the Pope, like, look, you deal with saving people's souls. I'll deal with running the state. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm loosely paraphrasing there, and it might apply to a different scenario, but, you know, you get the gist of what I'm trying to say, that especially people today tend to look back at this point in history with a critical lens and critique the rising power structures at the time as being brutal and barbaric and essentially antithetical to the core tenets of the Christian faith. But we have to keep in mind and remember that at a time when the only way people ate was oftentimes, especially when we're talking about farther north in Europe, was to go kill and harvest something. Like, that harsh language is sometimes the only language they speak. And it takes those difficult experiences that seem so alien to us to convey that message to the greater population right we we like to we like to think nowadays that we're a different type of people that we're morally superior that we don't torture people anymore that we are more civilized and have taken that barbaric edge off. But, and I'm going to borrow this from Dan Carlin in his Hardcore History podcast. He did an episode called Painfotainment about public, edu- ex- public executions and things of the like. And one of the questions he asked was, like, if we could do the Pepsi challenge right, the blind screening to where you have the red solo cup of Pepsi and the red solo cup of Coke, and you don't know which is which, so you do the blind taste test. And we had an action movie where all of the the violence was CGI. And we had the same action movie where all of the violence was real. And we didn't tell the audience which was which, and we just did a blind sampling. Which one would our human nature be more drawn to? Right? Just because we've digitized our violence doesn't mean we're any less of the same type of people that used to tailgate party public executions to watch people get brutally broken on the wheel or drowned or hanged or beheaded or buried in the sand and having your face smothered with honey so the ants can come get you and kill you like right crucifixion um in the 50s bc marcus lachius crassus one of the richest people ever to live he was part of the uh the triumvirate of rome it was crassus caesar and pompey um he was the roman general that raised an army from his own private funds to crush the tens of thousands slave rebellion led by Spartacus in the ancient Roman Republic. 
And upon his victory, the Roman Senate granted him a triumph, which is the whole, you know, procession into Rome of your army and all of the goods and your prisoners and you at the back, where basically the entire empire was the republic at the time. But, you know, the entire republic is venerating you for your service. He as part of his triumph, chose to take, the number varies, but between three and 6,000 of these rebellious slaves and crucify them down Appian Way to lead his triumph past going into Rome, the, the seat of the Republic, as a display of Rome's authority as extended through his actions of why you don't rebel against the system. Like, are we really better now than we were then? And that's, that's a tough question to ask. That is a great point, especially when you consider that level of violence was backed by the moral high ground. Like, I won because God was on my side, so now everything that I do has been approved. And we still kind of do that. I'm thinking of the Titanic and how obsessed people are with learning about it. And there's, like, Titanic historians, and they all argue about minutes and seconds of what happened when. And, you know, obviously the movie and James Cameron and going down and finding the wreckage and all of that is okay to marvel at even though like a thousand people died or something because that was an act of God, you know, or of man's hubris or, you know, it was inherently violence, you know, everyone in the boiler room build and we love hearing about, you know, well, their skin must have sloughed off and it was instant death. And we love hearing about that because it was not, there's no one to be mad at besides possibly the people who died on board and so we, I'm, I'm thinking of like, I'm a peasant, I'm watching an execution or I'm seeing 3000 people and I'm like, that is gross. I don't actually really like that, but that's how it is. He won. God said he could do that. And like having that type of attitude towards things that men are doing or man is doing and, you know, having a little more of a hands-off approach to this is what happens. You know, the Titanic sank, it hit an iceberg. That was always going to happen. They were going too fast. They couldn't turn. Um, you know, those people rebelled. God said they shouldn't have. That's why he won. Um, and having that scapegoat of fate and, um, that's just fact. There was nothing anyone could do to prevent this. I mean, obviously there are tons of steps you could go along the way, but nobody did. Therefore, this was an act of God. Well, in the next step of that question then is what happens if both sides claim that? Right? So two things. The sack of Rome by the Visigoths in the early 400s we hear the term Visigoths and we think pagan heathens, Vikings coming through, sacking Rome for all of its wealth, the reduction of Christendom because of a surge of 
pagan barbarians. But I'm pretty sure, and any actual historians that are listening to this, please correct me in the comments, but I'm pretty sure that the Visigoths at this time were Christian themselves, or at least predominantly, right? And to, to use a much more recent example, um, the Christmas truce of 1914 during World War I. Um, there's an anecdotal story of a British soldier and a German soldier that met in no man's land on Christmas Day in 1914. And they started talking and they both kind of got to the point of like, well, I'm fighting this war because God's on my side. And the other responded the same way. And to preserve the sanctity of the day, they both just kind of agreed to just not talk about it. We can go back to fighting each other tomorrow. But you know, it, what's what is written in human nature in our genetic code to make us all the more violent to each other when our idea that we're the righteous ones comes under question. I'm wondering if it's more like this is the self-talk you have to do to justify this very first thought. Um, because thinking like, well, I'll just kill all of them and that will solve this problem is like a third graders idea of solving a problem like there's other ways we could go about this but sure you could kill them all that would definitely solve the slave rebellion problem um and often i think that that is the first thought an easy thought most people go well nah <laughs> couldn't do that that would be horrible but not all the time especially if you've you're used to just having people say yes great idea um so i think that, that first instinct to solve something with violence is just one of the options that we have as people. And most of the time we pick a different option because there would be consequences. Like if I'm at the grocery store and someone cuts me in line, I could fist fight them and then I would be in front of them. But I would probably get in a lot of trouble for doing that. So I won't. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of saying that laws are the things that keep people in line. It's not. It's those more social consequences like that's the girl who beats people up. Like you don't want to be that person or people to remember you that by. So it's more much more social than the laws itself. Um, but the knowing that nothing bad will happen to you unless you lose, I think, is the thing that lets people go ahead and do that versus finding another solution that is obviously there. You just have to think a little bit harder. Um, and that's probably worked in the past, probably not the first time he's crushed a rebellion. Um, so yeah, I would put it up to a little bit of laziness, a little bit of no consequences, a little bit of being surrounded by a yes men. Um, Cause most of the time that's not what we do. If we did, we'd all be dead. Well, Two things. Um, 
and this is probably getting into a realm of a topic that we can cover properly with a different episode. But since we're on track, uh, I want to lay these out there. Um, Firstly, that is part of what makes being in the military so degrading on your psyche is recognizing that sometimes to do good, we're asked to do terrible things, right? Take Charlemagne publicly executing those, you know, 3,000, 3,500, 4,500, whatever the exact number is, like, that's a terrible thing. But when you're convinced that that's how you're going to convert the rest of Europe and save millions of souls, then, you know, I'm not one to adopt the ends justify the means rationale because that's a very slippery slope and is really easy to the ends justify the means to do some absolutely atrocious things. But if it comes down to preserving the safety and security of my family, I am willing to have that mark on my soul to have my family taken care of. Right. That's a burden that I'm willing to bear. Now, that might be because like, I'm the patriarch of my family and that those are the social expectations that I've been accultured to as part of that duty. Um, it might be, you know, mix that in with my own personal values, whatever it might be. Um, but that's a different question for a different time. Um, I think we do have built into like modern day America the idea that sometimes it's fine not all the time but sometimes like you can kill the person who came into your house without permission um you know a burglar and the government can use the death penalty on people that you know they say did the crime and i am thinking that there must have never been a society ever where it was a line in the sand. This is a wrong thing to do. They're always willing to look at the circumstances and s judge based on the extra information, not just that one single thing. Like, it's okay to steal bread if you're starving. Like in Les Mis, we feel for that guy. We're not just like, well, you shouldn't have stolen. Um, you, we do have that built in as well to change our moral compass based on what's going on at that time well and, i think we always uh, have there's a um there was a historian richard maxwell brown i believe is his name and he looked at the north carolina regulator rebellion as i did and the south carolina regulators um in one of his careers one of the major theses in his career that that a topic point and talking point that he looked at a lot was the culture of violence that became the hallmark of American culture, right? Because you look at British culture, which is for all intents and purposes, the father of American culture, right? I don't necessarily mean to use the, the gender terminology there, but you know what I mean? Um, 
we trace our common law roots and our socio-political origins to that of England and its long legal tradition going back to 1066 or whatever it is, um, the Magna Carta as a perfect example. Um, but it's written in English, or the Constitution is written in English. We yeah. know who this came from. Um, and if you look at the historical context of the colonists, even after there's you know a million or so English empire subjects in the North American colonies. We're still descendants of those frontiersmen and those living on the pie, the pioneers living on the periphery of that culture, right? Where one of the hallmarks of independence is that self-reliance and self-sufficiency up to and including not having or the state not having the monopoly on violence because you're on the fringes. I mean, think think the cowboy era in the United States, right? With the, the American Southwest, right? That's a, that's a perfect, more recent microcosm of that. Um, and, and that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing that I always appreciated looking at. The other thing that I was going to bring up earlier too is I try and get my students to think about all the time because they're hot headed teenagers. And basically for most of their day, they're just responding to pressures from their amygdala and their fight or flight response. Um, and I see so many of them that are feisty and fiery and ready to fight. And they don't think, think about secondary and tertiary consequences. And I have to get them to even to try and think that sometimes Taking the punch in the mouth is the easy option. There are some times that the mark of maturity is recognizing that getting in this fight now might solve this problem, but it creates this whole host of other problems that not just me, but my friendship group, my immediate family, my mentors in the school now are all dragged into as well. And once you can start recognizing and prioritizing your responses based on that, then, you know, that's that next step up in that maturity level. Yeah, the moral compass that we allow to spin based on the circumstances has to stay mostly static most of the time. And I'm sure all of those kids can say to your face, it's wrong to hit someone. Um, you know, you could be arrested for assault if you hit someone, that's wrong. You should never hit someone. But when the time comes that they really want to hit someone, that moral compass that they can say and they know will spin as it naturally will. Um, because we can say, you know, it's wrong to hit someone, but if, you know, you've been hit 12 times and you have to hit them to get away, we would say, well, that's not wrong because you're just trying to get away. So you just give them the jab and that's fine. So having, I think there's a little, a lot of egocentrism in teenagers in the sense that, you know, people will understand why I did this. 
I am justified in doing this because it helps me and being unable to take into consideration that other people have other perspectives that might differ from yours and this might not be justified and being able to think and empathize with the person that you're fighting with as well can be a little limited. And then there are some teenagers who are so strict and they're the exact opposite and they have to learn to be more flexible as they get older um, and learn to, you know, like it's okay to overspend or it's okay to uh, say a mean thing to someone if you feel like it. And there, I mean, you work with teenagers a lot, so you can tell me like, no, that's so rare. Don't even mention it. Um, but it feels like all teenagers are doing is working on having that just stable enough, just flexible enough to fit with our society and our ideals right now. Yeah. Most of them are so corrupted by social media that they adopt a set of real world behaviors that would be successful on social media and get them views and likes and hearts on Instagram, but aren't practicable or effective in the real world. And they try to act those behaviors out and then they get that cognitive dissonance as to why nobody likes them. Right. Um, Yeah. It's so tough when I hear about like the government wants to ban TikTok. And it's like, that might be an overreach of government power, but I still think they should do it because <laughs> it's a poison. Yeah. In, in in fact, one of the honors project topics that I offer to my students is the question, should the government regulate social media? And I don't tell them which side to argue on, right? I give them a spackling of pros and cons sources and I let them form their own conclusion and I help them make their own conclusion stronger. Um and typically what a lot of them tend to come to is that whole, yes, it should probably be regulated, but we don't want to open Pandora's box by having them the sole arbiter of truth in order to do that. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that is kind of a good parallel to, I mean, it's not at all, but as far as like, <laughs> <laughs> should... Um, cause there's nothing that this social media, there's nothing comparable in the history of the entire world to what we're dealing with now. Um, but the limited parallel that I could come up with is the sort of, uh, Puritan ideals of you shouldn't laugh, you shouldn't dance, you shouldn't have fun. Um, uh, and where those came from in Christianity and that strict, you know, should we let the government decide what is right and wrong, what I'm allowed to do, what I'm allowed to think, uh, what I'm allowed to read? And for a long time, the answer was just yes, because that was already in place. And we kind of accepted that. And then also it was yes, wink, because you don't know what I do in my cottage on the hillside next to the river with my village. So it doesn't really matter. Like, yes, okay, I'll appease you and then go do my own thing anyways. Um, So the regulation of, you know, I imagine that they would view it the same way, like social media being a poison that's corrupting the youth the same way as, um, you know, the liar being invented and everyone going, oh, this is way too hoppy. It's going to corrupt the youth, Um, which I feel that social media is a uh, genuine uh, issue 
to be dealt with. Um, and a lot of the things that, you know, Christianity and therefore the government were fighting against in these medieval times are not as big of a risk. We know that now. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think alcohol is a good one as well, where it was sort of accepted as, you know, this is a corrupter. You may partake, uh, but we will judge you. Uh, versus, you know, you cannot even touch this because your soul will become dirty and how different regions, even of the same state, could have that same idea. Um, and yeah, I think that's as far as the parallel goes. <laughs> but the who gets to decide? Yeah, well, it, it's it's an interesting case where it seems hypocritical at face value, but it's not when you recognize that two things can be true at the same time, that, mm -hmm. you know, something is potentially dangerous, but also we don't want to open Pandora's box in that way. Um, well, and, and that's that's important, especially if we're tying this back to the spread of Christianity, because I think we can we can start putting a bow on this and, and calling it a wrap. Um, mm -hmm. That whole phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. People tend to take that at face value as like an arrogant claim of, you know, give me my riches or whatever. Um but if you dig into it a little bit more, what it suggests is that healthy separation of church and state that we, I mean, even, even Christ himself is, is quoted in the new Testament as, you know, saying that the heavenly world is the realm of the Lord and needs to be dealt with in a certain way in the material world needs to be dealt with in, in, in a slightly different way, right? You, you need to handle those those two things differently, but in a way that bolsters each other. I don't I, I don't feel good about that terminology, but it's it's late and that's that's what I'm sticking with. Um but you know that that is that should the early medieval church as state be dictating x y and z or should we have separate mechanisms for our moral purity and our legal codes i think also being able to tell if it's working or not like what measure do we say this was the right choice how do we look back and say this was right and this was wrong. And the only answer to that is time. You got to let it go. Because um, the, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. That's a common phrase because it's very true. You can look back and see all of the variables and say, oh, their real motivation for this was that they um, hated China. And that was the only thing. And TikTok is a China company. And so, um, or you might look back and say, you know, this was a net positive because literary rates went up 15% um, literacy, uh, I mean. And, mm -hmm. you know, is that the metric we want to judge this by? Uh, people started saving more money because there was less consumerism, because they were seeing less ads. And uh, 
uh, diagnosis of ADHD went down 50% because suddenly people could watch videos longer than 60 seconds. Um, and like, what are we going to look at? What do we value that uh, is going to change by making this? And you can't know what's going to change until you change it. Um, and I think that's one of the hardest things about like the written down laws that we have now is they're not as flexible as they probably need to be in order to adapt to the new knowledge that we have by creating them in the first place. Um, which I think religion is a little more flexible. Um, and I guess that kind of breaks down when you consider church as state in medieval times, but the religious part was more flexible they could adapt as needed. Like women need to cover their hair. Okay. No one is doing that now. So we can say they don't have to. And, um, like, it's okay to bring your dog inside and say, I love my dog. And, um, it's okay to, you know, divorce eventually. And these, uh, the flexibility and, you know, saying something and then this is law and this is how it is everyone accepting it. And then being able to change that later on as needed, um, I think is the most valuable thing in the staying power of any entity. I guess that adaption that that adaptations that they're able to do. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of that. Um, spread of Christianity into Europe. Any any last words? I think. The main takeaway is the effectiveness for me comes down to, we were just saying the flexibility. It has changed a lot since it was first spread. The things that they were telling people is not the same things missionaries are telling people today. And the, um, I guess for me, it does go back to the polytheism within monotheism where this one is the God, but you can have all of these other religious figures that you idolize and pray to and keep figures of. Um, and uh, so it does have a more personal touch, um, which I think is why it has spread over all of these different languages and cultures more easily. It's because it, all it took takes is long enough for someone to become a saint and then they are proud yeah, and let's, um, just for the sake of semantics, let's use the term venerate so that way we're not participating in idolatry. I'd, I'd hate to be any more blasphemous than we've already been for the past two hours. I know. <laughs> I'm using all the wrong terms. All right, well, I... Uh, uh, the sentiment is good. there, I hope. Yeah, well, and, and hopefully whatever small group of steady state listeners that we have recognize that we are dealing with oftentimes borderline controversial subjects in the best ways possible while keeping things digestible for people that aren't in a graduate level classroom. This is true. Um, if it would help, we can do this for all the other major religions as well.
Yeah, and, and, and that's, again, that's something that we didn't even get to touch on is the whole time that Christianity is spreading into Europe. Um, the Persian Empire has fallen and Islamic caliphates have risen in its stead. And they are... The, I'd be happy to blaspheme them as well. Right. And they are the groups that we have to thank for the Renaissance because while Christianity was only producing Bibles, the caliphates were reproducing Aristotle and Socrates and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, 